It just sounds like we're criticizing things because they didn't work when most of the country didn't even try half of the things. And then the things that were advertised were never going to be 100% fixes. There's something to be said about the fact that had you chosen to be vaccinated, you're protected. If people don't, are we supposed to be protecting them and closing down schools and locking down continuously? In a way, I'm sympathetic to her, but I think one thing that I'm I react to in hearing her is that she's not acknowledging that there actually is a rollback. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, guys, I think a lot has happened since Thursday. Where are we going to start? Well, Ravi, first up, it's looking more and more likely that Russia will invade Ukraine. Are we headed for World War III or just another 2014 Crimea situation? The Supreme Court agrees to hear two cases on affirmative action. Ravi is going to break down the implications of that. Barry Weiss and Congressman Richie Torres go on Bill Maher representing the fault lines in the fight against the pandemic. They ask the question, should we be done with COVID restrictions? And the company that produces M&Ms make politically correct changes to their personalities of those iconic chocolates. So of course we had to weigh in on this issue of such national importance. But first, it's only the first month of 2022 and five police officers have already been shot this year in New York City. In response, New York's new mayor, Eric Adams, introduced some harsh new policies to crack down on crime, including the return of the controversial plainclothes anti-crime unit and a policy resembling stop and frisk. You are in plainclothes, you hop out the car, you come at someone uh, quickly. In many communities, that is a sign that you're about to be attacked. And that has created a lot of hostility. So we're going to make sure that the version of plainclothes officers will have modification, modify police attire that they are quickly identified as police officers. The plan also includes enhanced facial recognition surveillance and spot checks on buses coming into the city with the goal of stopping the flow of guns. So is this an overreaction? or a move in the right direction, considering how crime is in New York these days. Right, and you know, that's obviously about so much more than New York, but I think New York is a microcosm of what's happening around the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this is following just general trends in crime. So there's a 58% jump in crime in New York City from pre-pandemic levels. Uh, You're seeing violence increase across the country against cops and in general. So Eric Adams ran on this platform largely. Like, obviously, there's some specific things here that are surprising. But overall, him getting more aggressive on crime is is in part what he was elected to do. Uh, He obviously has a background as a former police officer. And I think although, like, the cops being shot is not expected, the, the crime trends continuing isn't unexpected. And Adams being aggressive seems like not too much of a surprise for me. But given the fact that, yes, crime is up, Um, after the pandemic, crime went up across the board in most parts of the country. But if you look at like New York City, I mean, you were born and raised in New York City. I mean, you go back to the 90s when, I mean, you were talking thousands of homicides a year. We're nowhere near those types of levels. So is this in any way an overreach? Yeah, I think it depends on where you live, right? Because I think even though homicides have, have, uh, you know, they were trending down all the way until 2018, which you were seeing record lows at that point, uh, in certain parts of the city, including the Bronx, the increases are pretty dramatic and having uh, like devastating effects on communities. And but the '90s were crazy. I was just yeah. looking at these statistics. Yeah. There were 2,245 murders in 1990 
Um, and you know, there was, uh, cops used to say, you give us 22 minutes, we'll give you a homicide, which is a play on the 10, 10 wins. We'll give you 22 minutes. We'll give you the world. 10, 10 wins. The minute something happens, your first reaction is to reach for us first. 10, 10 wins. You give us 22 minutes. We'll give you the world. And so it was a crazy time. I remember it as a kid. I remember the nineties and there's certain places in the city you just did not go. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, those are some of the neighborhoods now that hipsters from Michigan live in multi-million dollar houses in, but that's a whole other segment. Yeah, I mean, I think as somebody who wasn't alive in the 90s and doesn't remember it, it there's something to be said about the Wait fact a minute, that we you were- You weren't alive at all in, in no. the 90s? Wow. <laughs> 2000. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, but I was frozen for five years as an IVF baby, so well, at least cool. I was around slightly. Yeah, you were there. But um, were there. <laughs> maybe we should cut that part. <laughs> no, leave um, it in. No, leave it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, leave it in. 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 Um, so I think it's worth noting that we went from record lows and now we're we're resuming to levels maybe not as bad as they were before. But you know that's worth that's worth noting because there's young people like me who've never experienced that level of crime in New York who've come to expect and have built their lives around not expecting that. Especially as a young woman, I have I've had a few. I've lived here for three years before and I've been threatened twice in just the past couple months. And wow. I think, you know, there's recently we've had eight rapes and eight murders in subways with lower ridership. The, the city is more dangerous than it was before. There's a perceivable change. And I think that it's valid that, you know, a lot of people in the city elected Eric Adams with the expectation that he'd make these changes. Um, I don't love all of them. I don't yeah. like the idea that there's facial recognition with CCTV cameras. I think stop and frisk is a violation of of people's rights not to be invaded by the government. Um, but I also think that there is some movement in the right direction. And I also think it's worth bringing up the um, DAs because, you know, I I think there's a lot of laws in place that are putting people in jail that shouldn't be in jail in the first place. But I don't think the answer to that is just saying we're not going to enforce the laws that exist and we're just going to pick and choose. I think the answer is, OK, how do we reform these laws and what laws are frivolous and not put in place for the right way. But when you stop enforcing the laws that are in place, it it gives this aura of, oh, I can do anything and get away with it, which is why, you know, I I tried to get a $3 thing of chocolate covered pretzels off the CVS thing last night and I had to get it unlocked by the staff member because they had to put like a little red thing to hold it on so wow. people don't steal it. Like, <laughs> I mean, really, like what, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, we had a good discussion with Alvin Bragg when he was in here, the, mm -hmm. the Manhattan DA about this because, you know, he he's basically decriminalizing you know, in, in general, they're, they're really good movements to decriminalize drugs, for example, around the country. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing. But then there's this sense like there's this happened in San Francisco. It's happening here in Manhattan where they're saying basically any petty theft under a certain amount of money, yeah. they're not prosecuting it, which seems sensible until you realize like I was in the supermarket the other day and somebody just walked right in out of the street grabbed a bunch of things like it was supermarket sweep and walked out. And this is a, a small business. It's not yeah. like a, a chain, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I see the manager just looking at it like, wow, what am I supposed to do? Like, yeah. wh what if that turns yeah. into dozens of people an hour? You know, people need to make a living. And so I both believe that people shouldn't go hungry. It's a, it's a failure of public policy that people have to go into mm -hmm. a store and steal anything. Absolutely. Um, and at the same time, small businesses need to thrive as well. And often these are immigrant owned businesses as well. And so in a place with as much money and resources as New York City, we should be able to solve both of those problems without the kind of stuff that's happening on the streets right now. Yeah, I got a very good impression from Alvin Bragg when you had that interview with him. I think he's a decent individual and he has grown up in high crime areas. So he's trying to approach 
uh, you know, pr persecuting or prosecuting crimes a little differently than traditional DAs. However, when I look at some of the things that have been uh, basically decriminalized because he's just not going to prosecute them, things like jumping the turnstile, for instance, what I've noticed is when I first moved to New York, I saw people jump the turnstile and people would be like, oh my God, I can't believe that person did that. And it was kind of like a shocking thing. Yeah, now it's regular. Now yeah. there are homeless people who are holding the emergency exit open for people to just come in as they please so that they can possibly get money from it. Like, because they know that there's not going to be any chance that they're going to get arrested for that crime. And then also I've noticed that he's basically not going to uh, prosecute prostitution crimes anymore. Now, that may be great for the woman who's just doing that to get by, but what about the people who are being exploited? What about the people who are being trafficked and the pimps that are involved? Now, they're basically able to just operate with impunity. And so I think that when you like it's like we just talked about, when you give that sense that oh, we're not we're not going to be that tough on crime anymore, then it encourages criminals from across the spectrum to say, well, now we can do what we want because the people who are in office are going to be weak on us. Yeah, I would hope that, you know, I haven't looked in at the sex work stuff, but I would hope that you could decriminalize the sex work itself while also going after the course of behavior of the pimps, I hope. But, you yeah. know, one thing that that's notable here is that the perceptions uh, around this key platform of Democrats and, and liberals around defund the police yes. has been central over the past few years. I think there's a huge debate about what's driving crime or not. We've done segments on this before. Uh, but since 2020, the proponents of defund the police have been losing the public debate. So uh, in October 2021, 47% of respondents uh, said they support increasing police budgets. Mm -hmm. That's up from 31% in 2020, and just 15%, 15, uh, want to decrease uh, police budgets, uh, and that was 25%. And that trend is true across demographics, including uh, black Americans who used to be more supportive of defund than not supportive, and now that's completely flipped. And so uh, I think people like Ilhan Omar, AOC, they're losing the public debate on this. And I think in part, that's why you have people like Eric Adams yeah. winning. Yeah. Um, and he's not the only one. You see it all across the country. Yeah. And I think that the issue with police relations goes back to my point that, you know, we do have frivolous laws that police officers are being put in the position of enforcing that often, in my opinion, are unjust. There are people that are put behind bars for way too long. And if we actually we didn't circumvent the system by just saying, oh, we're not going to prosecute, but we actually investigated which which crimes and which laws are putting people in an unjust position to be put behind bars and is also requiring police officers to be enforcing those laws that are kind of ridiculous. I think that that would improve relations as well. So I think that, you know, there's there's a case to be made for deregulation, but defunding yeah. and ultimately putting people potentially in danger is not a good thing. And also it's worth noting that 2021 was the deadliest year for police since 1995. So there's actually a cost to the police themselves too. And that's worth, that's worth putting on the table. Well, one thing I want to mention is, you know, a lot of the sort of progressives who are pushing uh, defund the police are, are framing it as some kind of binary. And this was Ilhan Omar, who's, you know, coming from Minnesota or Minneapolis is central to this. We're just having huge problem with their, their, the debate around defund. Mm -hmm. This is what she had to say. She said, let's be clear, the people who oppose this, meaning defund, have always opposed calls for systemic change. So basically she's saying you, you're either for defund and systemic change or you're against it. And that's actually the complete opposite of what the data yeah. says. The data mm -hmm. says that actually it's the, the communities most impacted who both want systemic change and they yeah. want to increase police budgets. They just want police officers to treat them better, but they yeah. do mm -hmm. want police officers on their corners. 
Yeah, people Absolutely. who live in high crime areas don't want to get rid of police. They need more police and they need better trained police. They simply just don't want to deal with harassment at high levels. Yeah, and that seems part of, you know, to bring it full circle, that seems to be the promise of what Eric Adams is talking about. So he's, mm-hmm. one thing that was undernoticed, I think, in, in what he's doing is he's taking a lot of people uh, and getting them off their ass uh, doing desk jobs and getting them out into the community. So they're actually increasing the force on the streets and he's deploying it to the precincts that have the highest levels of crime. And so, you know, if, if he's able to follow through on that, I actually think it could make a huge difference. Definitely. And I think it's worth noting that if you look at the map of the Democratic primary in the city, the people who voted for Adams were the people who faced crime every day, not the elites in Manhattan with their doormen that are saying defund the police and haven't actually lived the consequences of that. So I think that this election was a really important kind of reaction to all this rhetoric. Now let's jump into a heavy topic that is making headlines. Tensions are rising on the Russia-Ukraine border. Russian President Vladimir Putin has amassed over 100,000 soldiers and large amounts of military equipment near Ukraine's border, which intelligence officials suspect is preparation for a possible invasion. Now, President Biden has ordered families of American embassy employees in Kiev to leave the country of Ukraine, and he is considering sending thousands of U.S. troops to Eastern Europe in response. U.S. forces would be joining other NATO countries countries who are sending troops, planes and ships to that region. So uh, World War Three, is this how is this how it all ends? Or is this just Putin being Putin and kind of just doing another one of his famous bluffs? Well, I think Putin recognizes the fact that the United States has no appetite to send troops into war. That's what's really going on here. And he's taking advantage of that. Everybody knows it. Everybody in this country knows it. Everybody in the world knows it. And we're all pretending like the U.S. is actually going to do something about this. But we're not. Uh, and so we're going to- You don't s- think so. At, you know, the, we'll, we could push economic sanctions, but yeah. we should all be asking ourselves, this is this is a country that, that even, you know, putting aside like the Trump colluded, it is- undisputed within our intelligence communities that Russia tried, uh, at least tried, and some some of us believe more, to uh, intervene in US elections. Mm -hmm. So what economic sanctions are we going to add that we weren't already going to do because Russia was trying to interfere in our elections? Like, there's only so much you can do. You know, the one the one wild card is obviously Europe, and there's all sorts of stuff like the gas pipeline to Germany and stuff that are leverage points. But in the end, I think the U.S. will, you know, saber rattle and then wind up doing at least nothing from the hot war perspective, no matter what Russia does with Ukraine, because we don't have the appetite domestically to enter into another war. I think staying out of intervention in other countries as much as possible is always an ideal. But obviously, this is threatening a really huge precedent in Europe that, you know, Russia does not interfere in in the Eastern Bloc. And that's certainly important. Um, and I think, you know, Britain is suggesting that it they might be trying to install a puppet state, which is super concerning as well. But I mean, I definitely don't have all the answers to the international conflict on this one. Yeah, where it comes down is basically Russia and Putin is trying to prevent Ukraine from entering NATO because NATO has traditionally been not even really an anti-Russian organization, but they were developed to basically prevent and respond to Soviet aggression, going all the way back to right after World War II. And so the idea, Russia, Putin still thinks Russia is Soviet Union. Like, I don't know why he still thinks it's the you know 1940s or something. And so he believes that NATO is a threat to him and does not want Ukraine to join NATO. They haven't officially joined NATO, but they are, basically they've expressed interest in joining and NATO does consider them an ally. The problem is in, with the NATO as a military alliance, 
any country in NATO that goes to war with a country outside of the alliance, the other countries are compelled to help. So we are part of NATO. We're very central to NATO. So if, in fact, Putin does invade Ukraine, Biden could be compelled to at least send some type of support there, maybe not actual boots on the ground, but maybe some type of you know military equipment, uh, further aid, things of that nature. And I'm getting a lot of mixed messages from the Republican Party as to if that like what they want Biden to do here. Uh, Jesse Waters, for instance, said that we should deal with problems in America first and not worry about what's going on in Kiev. But then Don Jr. comes around, uh, Donald Trump's son, and says Biden is weak on Ukraine and that Ukraine and that uh, and well, Biden is weak on the situation that Putin is testing Biden because he knows he's weak. So what does the Republicans want him to do? do they want him to invade Russia? Do they want him to send troops <laughs> over there, or do they want him to stay out of this? I'm 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 really I'm getting very confused here. I think this is where there's a kind of old school war hawk faction of the right and then a more libertarian faction of the right. And I think, you know, it's unfortunate to me that we're all lumped together. I mean, I'm an independent, but, you know, a lot of the people that I am in circles with are on the right and that we're all lumped together into one party, even though that's a really fundamental difference. And I'm definitely not on the war hawk side. I think that's where a lot of it's coming down to. Um, and then just some people just want to take a hit at Biden. But, you know, yeah, I mean, there's always that as well. Yeah, well, I think it's clear just thinking about the, the situation there is that if the people of Ukraine had their way, they'd be members of NATO. And if yeah. NATO had it their way, Ukraine would be in NATO as well. Uh, the only reason why they're not and the only reason why the popular will isn't being listened to is because everybody knows it would piss off Russia. And so uh, I agree that the, the move here is some kind of murky kind of regime change type situation. But the, the public sentiment on the ground, from what I understand, in Ukraine is so overwhelmingly anti-Russia yeah. yeah. that that would be explosive in and of itself. And so it's it's not clear where we're going to go from here. But on the politics front, mm-hmm. you know, Biden did say something that I think was uh, was foolish. And he said it in a press conference. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor and and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. I think he forgot that he wasn't in the situation room talking to his generals. Like, although I agree with him that there's very there's very little the U.S. can do and that we should have a proportional response, to use a West Wing reference, <laughs> uh, you shouldn't be saying that out loud. I yeah. think you should keep yeah. your cards close to your vest and, and, and at least go through the charade of thinking that the U.S. would do more. Yeah, the optics on that were pretty bad. He also um, made a kind of gaffe. I think it wasn't anything more than that of saying. David, I'm not so sure he has uh, is certain what he's going to do. My guess is he will move in. He has to do something. Putin's got to do something, which yeah, right. didn't look great as well. Yeah. But, you know, keeping that line drawn, I think, is important. And comments like these obviously are tripping over it. Yeah, he said one other thing that, that was notable to me. He said this would be the most consequential thing that's happened in the world in terms of war and peace since World War II, which is interesting coming from a guy who supported the last two wars that we've had in the Middle East. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, a lot of people have been saying that this could lead to World War Three and everything like that. And this would be the first time America has gotten involved in a European conflict of this nature since maybe Kosovo. But on this scale, we haven't really seen anything like this since uh, World War Two. The question is, if Putin is allowed to go into Ukraine and unchecked by NATO, unchecked by America, I think the big the big worry, the big fear in Europe is well, what stops him? What stops him from from going further? What stops him from going into other countries that were former Soviet Union states? And basically, what stops him from basically just like restarting the USSR? I don't I don't know if if, if I don't know if it's America's role to prevent that though, because we're not a European country and we do have a lot of problems here. Right. There is one 
troubling because I don't want to just beat up on Biden here. There's this troubling trend uh, on the right right now, which I think, Ricky, to your point, it used to be like a, a, the the neoconservatives were dominating the Republican Party and they would be all over this like, all right, let's saber rattle. Let's show what the U.S. is made of. Yeah. Now, you know, Tucker Carlson said, why is it this? He asked, why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? I, I, I find a, it very odd statement. I find it shocking that that is a question being asked in the United States right now by a prominent member of the party. And, and that echoes what Don, uh, Don Trump Jr. said. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we should even have to say this, but one is a democracy and one is an autocracy yeah. and mm -hmm. one tried to interfere in our elections and one has been a steadfast ally of the United States that wants to join NATO. I don't know why we have to explain these things, uh, but this is where we are right now. Yeah, there seems to be this strain on the right of people who side with Putin, who side with Russia because they are ideologically aligned with some of the things that they stand for over there. And it has nothing to do because and a lot of these individuals, they don't understand the complexities of our relationship with Ukraine or our relationship with NATO. They just see some of the things that Putin has done ideologically that are kind of in line with this far right tilt. And they say, oh, I like that. It's why they like Viktor Orban in Hungary, for yeah, example. Mm -hmm. same like, thing. It's, it's really weird. Like, and, and it should trouble people that there's there's this just reverence for autocracy that you see yeah. out there and and that echoes some things that were happening domestically. I think people are getting tired of democracy because democracy is hard. Democracy things move very slow and I think that a lot of that is reflective of why we see so much support for somebody like Putin. Hopefully World War 3 doesn't start, but if it does, I got my <laughs> my rations saved up and I got, you know, all my things ready to go. Uh we're going to talk a little bit now about the Supreme Court and how they have agreed to hear two cases on affirmative action. The conservative majority Supreme Court has agreed to hear a challenge to the consideration of race in college admissions. The lawsuits accuse Harvard University and the University of North Carolina of discriminating against Asian American applicants in an effort to promote diversity. This is a very significant uh thing going on here, Ravi, and you got some really strong opinions about it being from the, having an educational background. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're all, we're all there, but I think uh, <laughs> I'm obsessed with the elite universities, as you know, and so uh, what I find interesting here is they combine two cases that they're going to be hearing at the same time, and, mm -hmm. it, and one is the Harvard case, which has to do with discrimination against Asian Americans, and the other is the UNC case, which is about general affirmative action questions, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a fascinating combination because one's a private university and the other is a public university. And so this to me is the beginning of the end, if not the end itself of affirmative action in this country, because it, affirmative action was already under very tenuous legal standing up until now. You mm -hmm. had this uh, Bollinger case, uh, you know, back in the day when I was, in, before I went into law school that, you know, was a narrow ruling allowing affirmative action to move forward. And then you had an even more narrow ruling just a few years ago in 2016 in Fisher versus the University of Texas at Austin, which was a 4-3 case. And it was 4-3 because Scalia had just died and Kagan had to recuse herself. And mm -hmm. it was 4-3 narrowly upholding affirmative action, but really limiting it. Mm -hmm. And that was under that court. And so now if you think about the fact that it is an overwhelmingly more conservative court, when you think about Kennedy being replaced and Ginsburg being replaced and everybody sitting, this is a court that will overturn affirmative action for good. And I think what I think the American public needs to wrestle with is what do we replace it with? And you know, we can have the discussion about whether affirmative action is good or bad, but I think it's it's almost irrelevant at this point because I don't think it's going to stand. 
Yeah, um, I'm, there's a great chart from The Economist that shows how SAT scores, when you divide them up by race in different deciles of Harvard applicants, are pretty pretty staggeringly different with the outcomes of admissions. Um, and Asian Americans are clearly coming out at the bottom of that heap. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's there are definitely economic and resource disparities that are coming through with this. And I, I, I think... Boiling it down to a single immutable characteristic as someone who came from a prep school, you know, there are people that are privileged of all different shapes and sizes and colors and whatever background they come from. But and and there are statistical trends. And so I think that if we could really kind of strike this down, which I think the court is going to do and realize that we need to look at applicants more holistically, that there are inherent advantages. If you have SAT prep, if you have a tutor, if you're if you have two parents in the household, if you're working at a a, a part-time job and you know you can look at a whole applicant and if there are still disparities in SAT scores in the end because we're looking at socioeconomic backgrounds and the context of where a student comes from I think that's totally fine because there are disparities in our population but when we boil it down to just a single characteristic I think that you know the people who are bearing the brunt of the consequences here are Asian American applicants and that doesn't seem fair either. Oh, yeah you make some really good points and I think if we looked at it through socioeconomic terms that would probably a little fair for everybody involved. My question to you, Ravi, is I don't I don't personally believe in like racial quotas, like, oh, you have to have a certain number of this or a certain number of that. But what if, if affirmative action is completely struck down, what stops a university from just not accepting African-Americans anymore or at least accepting them at a very low rate? Like what prevents discrimination in that in that case? Yeah, well, I think it would be like you would be uh, in violation of the Equal Protection Law and, mm -hmm. and the um, Civil Rights Act if you were to preference white people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the question is, just just the mere inertia of, uh, but you could do that now. Though. Yeah. Like this is just saying, if you wanted to solve that problem, mm -hmm. we're taking one tool away from you, which is affirmative action. And as somebody who was a school principal of mainly African-American kids growing up in a very, very poor neighborhood in Nashville, uh, I want to make sure that the system recognizing recognizes how much harder it is for them totally. to succeed, and that the actually the the, the kind of kid who produces anything on the level of the academic achievement of a suburban white kid is a kid who has characteristics that you're going to want more in your university. Absolutely. They're going to be tenacious. They're going to be resourceful. They would have fought through so much more. And so therefore, I think they're going to add so much more to the student population. And by the way, if you're in Appalachia or you're, you're growing up somewhere else and you're white and you're poor, um, I think that that person has more to offer than somebody who didn't uh, go through those circumstances. And this is why I'm worried about Harvard, because... 71% of black and Latino students uh, at Harvard come from wealthy backgrounds. So it's not the kids I was serving mainly. And the Asian American uh, families who have their own hardships, many of them, seems to me are being discriminated against. This is what the court is going to look at. So uh, the, in the briefs that the, the um, plaintiffs filed in this case, uh, they showed that Asian Americans were consistently ranking uh, low on things uh, in these subjective measures like mm -hmm. uh, positive personality, likability, courage, kindness. This is why I like standardized testing, by the yeah. way, yeah. because that's at least objective. As uh, as imperfect as it is, and and, and all the disadvantages that go into standardized testing, you can't game it in the way that you do these subjective things. And like you know, you also like there. You look at more affluent students; they can do things like I was the captain of my badminton team. I was like the rower, or whatever, and or they have the right person who could pick up the phone and call the admissions officer. At least with a standardized test, that that's a thing that if if you are you know coming up in the system, it's a predictable thing. You could say like no matter what, even if the odds are stacked against me, which by the way they are for everything. Yeah, I know that if I crush that thing, 
I have a leg up. But the data that Rick, Ricky was just showing shows that actually, like, if you if you look at that trend, and, and if people who are following us on the podcast, I'll try to do my best to explain this. But essentially, everybody's kind of grouped together. Essentially, if you're a student who gets poor academic results, right? Mm -hmm. But as you go up the scale and say you're doing better and better academically in high school, uh, you start to see the data spread. Where it's like it, basically, if you're black applying to Harvard and you do well academically, that is a good predictor that you're going to get in. Great, that's actually awesome. The bad part of this is that if you're an Asian American and you do well academically, uh, it doesn't do that much to help you get into Harvard, and that's problematic. Uh, and Harvard has known this. So the, the court documents that were filed show that in 2013, Harvard did its own study and found this out, but didn't release it. Mm. So this is what pisses me off, is that Harvard knows this is a problem. They're discriminating against Asian Americans, and they're turning populations against each other instead of solving yeah. the real problem here. Because if you look at it, you know, we've talked about this before. Harvard accepts legacy students at a bafflingly high rate. They accept um, affluent people at a bafflingly high, high rate. And um, Richard Collenberg did a study basically where he said, if you get rid of legacy admissions, mm -hmm. you get rid of alumni admissions, uh, and you substitute race-based admissions for economics, actually more people of color will get into Harvard. Absolutely. Uh, and so- in a way, it's like this is what the elites want you to be doing, which is everybody fighting for a smaller and smaller piece of the pie instead of looking at the bigger problems here. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting this graph that we're looking at excludes legacy and recruiting athletes. And, you know, Asians are definitely at the greatest disadvantage and white students are just above them. If you don't have the connections, it's almost worthless. I mean, it's some of the statistics are really staggering, like in the top 10 percent of applicants among black applicants, it's about a almost 60 percent acceptance. And for Asian American applicants, it's just over 10 percent. And that's not to say that in the end, if we did do a more socioeconomic based um, application approach, that there wouldn't still be group disparities because our country's history means that there are group disparities just in life in general. And that would these disparities would be fine if we weren't just plucking kids from certain backgrounds, from boarding schools around the country to fill up certain numbers, because that in the end is not giving the chance to the kid that works hard in the middle of nowhere in an inner city who's crushing it and at the top of their class, but might not be at the top of the pile admissions wise. And we knew this when we were, when I was applying to law school, even it was an open secret that you don't like I'm, you know, somehow we make Asian the category, which is like, you know, most of the world's population basically. But it's like, but they put, uh, we knew not to bubble in Asian when we were applying. Like my name is Ravi Gupta, it's impossible to to hide from it. But it doesn't help actually. And you know, as you could see from this data, it helped me better to to lean into being white than to be Asian American. This is why people are being pissed off. Well, this was a very enlightened conversation. I mean, I know Ricky, you went to NYU. Ravi, you went to Yale Law School. I went to film school, so I didn't have to deal with all of these uh, <laughs> these complications. We we just showed up and, and watched movies all day. So uh, I'm very enlightened by the situation. You've kind of changed my opinion about affirmative action a little bit. So I, I really appreciate the conversation. So let's move on to um, Bill Maher, his season debut. He invited ex-New York Times columnist Barry Weiss and Democratic Congressman Richie Torres to talk about COVID restrictions. Uh, Ricky, I know you watched a lot of this. What went down? Yeah, um, well, we queued up a few clips. I really think that this has brought to light the fault lines on COVID, especially amidst three people who are on the left and are progressive by their own uh, standards, but there's definitely two different narratives. So let's throw to that clip. And the public health response has become less draconian and more measured over time as the pandemic has become more manageable. And that's because of the success 
of the vaccination campaign. The Biden administration has presided over the vaccination of more than 200 million Americans, which has been effective. But now that, yeah, okay. I'm done. With this question? No, I'm, I'm done with COVID. Oh, I'm done. It's yeah. like I, I went so hard on COVID. I, yeah, I remember. sprayed the Pringles cans that I bought at the grocery store, stripped my clothes off because I thought COVID would be on my clothes. Like, I did it all. I watched Tiger King. I got to the end of Spotify. Like, we all did it, right? And, no, no, we didn't all okay, do well, it. Well, here's the thing. A lot no, of us, we didn't all do it. A lot it. of us did do it. And then we were told, you get the vaccine. You get the vaccine and you get back to normal. And we haven't gotten back to normal. So, Corey, I know before the show started, you had some pretty strong reactions to that. So I'll throw it to you first. Well, I think her response there definitely illustrates the way I think nearly everybody feels uh, about COVID. However, I take issue with a lot of it. I, I think it was a little bit of a childish response to just say, oh, I'm done with something because this is a crisis at the end of the day. This is a pandemic. 800,000 plus people have died in this country. More people have died from COVID-19 in America in the last two years than the amount of American soldiers that died in World War II in four to five years. This is a crisis. And I, and I, I think back to like 1944, I'm sure there were people in America who was like, you know what? I'm really sick of this war. But they didn't have the option to just say, oh, I'm done with the Nazis. I'm done with Hitler. I just, just bring them all back home. Let them do whatever they want in Europe. If we would have took that approach, we'd all be speaking the language of Deutschland right now. I think I and missed so something this morning. I, you guys are getting hot yeah, in there. I, yeah. I, I take issue with that. And I also take issue with the thing that she said about the vaccine where she said, oh, we were told that if we get the vaccine, we'll go, everything will go back to normal. Uh, no, you were only told that if you just, you know, did what she did, watched Tiger King and been on social media all day. None of these vaccines were 100% effective. None of them were billed or advertised to be 100% effective. And a third of the country refused to even consider getting the vaccine. So none of these measures that we did throughout 2020, 2021 were, were going to be 100% effective, especially when a large number of society said we're not even going to take part in the very basic, basic levels of them. So my problem with all of this is that it just sounds like we're getting we're, we're criticizing things because they didn't work when most of the country didn't even try half of the things. And then the things that were advertised were never going to be 100 percent fixes. So that's my problem with this. Well, first to respond to the issue of whether the vaccines were going to get us back to normal. I think I think that she does have some valid point on that because the expectation was that lockdown restrictions were going to be pulled back. You know, the CDC recommended after we knew that vaccinated people were much less likely to be carrying COVID, that they should still be wearing masks. Like that's one of the things that and this was in the early days before Omicron mm -hmm. when when the vaccine was really highly effective. And there were certain certain expectations of a return to normalcy that never really came. Um, and I would also say that there's later in the show, they discuss that the vaccine is a self-protective mechanism, that if I'm vaccinated, I'm it's virtually I mean, there is still a chance that I could die from COVID. But the chance of me getting hospitalized or dying from COVID is so much lower versus like, you know, I'm protecting myself versus requiring everyone else around me to be vaccinated and to protect me. So I think that there's there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, have have you had you chosen to be vaccinated? You're protected if people don't. Are we supposed to be protecting them and closing down schools and locking down continuously? And especially considering that in the beginning, she did react in a proportionate way. I was washing my chip bags. I did the whole thing back in the day. But, you know, this is an evolving crisis. And I think that we need to make sure that we're not putting 
um, especially young people at risk of self-harm and suicide, which is skyrocketed recently, or allowing schools to continue, public schools being closed on one side of the road and private schools being open on the other. Like there's just been some really unjust policies. And so I do agree with her that it's time to roll back the important things. I don't know. Well, I in a way I'm sympathetic to her, but I think one thing that I'm, that I, I react to in hearing her is that she's not acknowledging that there is, actually is a rollback. So she, I think, believes I believe she lives in New York City. Richie lives in New York City. Schools are back open in New York City. Uh, the you know it's pretty easy to go about your life in the city, especially if you're vaccinated. Now we can have a debate about whether we're putting too much of a burden and punishing the unvaccinated at this point for very little good. There was actually a really good article from Peter Atia this week that helped convince me to revisit some of my assumptions about vaccine mandates. Um, but so I think that she, even though things aren't moving as fast as she would want, and including maybe that I would want, I think she, if you were just a listener, you'd think that we have the same level of restrictions that we had six months ago or a year ago, and that's not true. The second is the use of the, to such a individualized language here. I think this is a collective experience that we're having, and to say, I'm done, that's that's fine if you're an ordinary citizen, but you're a public intellectual. We're, we're trying to marshal people's response as a community to this. And just like we criticize people who are pro-vax and pro-mandate um, for being tone deaf, I criticize her on this. Because if I'm a person who's pro-restriction, very scared, I'm a Chinatown activist or you know business owner who, who's traumatized, and Richie did a really good job talking about this, if... If I'm somebody who's traumatized from COVID and maybe I'm clinging to some of these restrictions further than I should, um, we should think about messaging to that person and, and showing them humanity the way we do for the unvaccinated. I'm constantly being reminded I need to talk to the unvaccinated with respect and I don't want to belittle them. And I think the same needs to go for people who've been traumatized by COVID, whether they lost somebody or they lost their business or they just aren't ready to to move on yet. And and they may be wrong, but I think we should show respect on that. And I think that risk requires very pragmatic and honest and open conversations about the data and the evolving risk and who's in an at-risk group and who isn't. And a lot of things that we have known for a long time that never really got the light shown on them, like BMI recently, CNN came out with a headline of like, does your BMI correlate with your COVID risk? Yes, we've known that for mm -hmm. a long time. And yeah. you could have kept people safe by admitting that. From but I think we should throw yeah. to a second clip um, of this continued conversation that'll give some, some more context on what Barry's response is to this. I'm sorry, if you believe the science, you will look at the data that we did not have two years ago, and you will find out that cloth masks do not do anything you will realize that you can show your vaccine passport at a restaurant and still be asymptomatic and carrying Omicron. And you will realize, most importantly, that this is going to be remembered by the younger generation as a catastrophic moral crime. The city of Flint, Michigan, which is 80%, I think, minority students, has just announced indefinite virtual schooling. In the past two years, we've seen among young girls a 51% increase in self-harm. People are killing themselves. They are anxious. They are depressed. They are lonely. That is why we need to end it more than any inconvenience that it's been to the rest of us. I think it's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's not yeah, well, it's not real anymore. Let's not forget that, you know, the pandemic has left a death count of more than 850,000 Americans. Well, that's a yes, but it was that's a, a squishy. Yes, but Richie, it was a blunt instrument. OK, if you look at who was affected by this, 803 children have died in the past two years in the entire country from and with COVID. I guess I, I offer a perspective. In, I was a New Yorker who lived through 
the early weeks and early months of the pandemic. And it was just a catastrophe for New York City, the likes of which we've never seen. We saw overflowing emergency rooms. Uh, New York lost more than 60,000 people. The Bronx alone lost more than 7,000 people, which is larger than the combined death toll of Pearl Harbor and 9-11. I saw mass graves in Hart Island in, in the Bronx. I mean, most New Yorkers saw a level of death and suffering we've never seen in our lives. And that's the source of the concern about COVID. I mean, I reject the notion that the response to COVID has been worse than the disease itself. Well, again, I get what Barry Weiss is saying here. Like, I understand the frustration. I just, I don't agree with the characterization that this was some moral crisis. She's saying that, oh, we have elevated levels of suicide, and elevated levels of self-harm in young women. Well, a lot of that has to do with social media. That's not all because of the, the pandemic. Not to mention, I think we'd also have elevated levels of anxiety and, and self-harm and suicide if more people had died from COVID-19. And so I just think that she's belittling this whole crisis as, oh, we did all these things just because we had these stupid governments telling us to do it. But no, we were trying to save lives. And quite frankly, if we had none of those restrictions, we probably would have had a lot more people die from COVID. And we'll never know how many lives we could have saved because a third of this country didn't follow any of those restrictions at all. Yeah. I mean, I think, though, that there's a difference between these restrictions in the beginning, which were valid because mm -hmm. we didn't know and there was a lot that we didn't know. And I think that, you know, one of the issues that we have and I think any person, any country with leadership has is that when you make a policy, you get married to it because mm -hmm. that was your policy. And I think that we had a lot of a lot of things that could have been rolled back. I mean, almost a year ago now, I wrote an article about the irreversible consequences of school closures. And we've had a lot of statistics and studies that have shown that, you know, in, in countries where schools remained open, there wasn't a surge of Omicron and that we know that children weren't at a particular risk. And also in the beginning with the original variant, that they weren't very likely to transmit it to teachers or to adults in general. And, you know, there's there were certain restrictions that were unnecessarily harsh in the beginning and like the example that she brings up of Flint, Michigan, I think that's really tragic. I think that we are going to see the consequences of these closures that we can't even imagine right now in the development of a whole generation of children. And I would also say social media existed before the pandemic. The self-harm rates among young girls, I mean, I have friends that have been affected by that and I think that, you know, we we're fortunate in a sense that this is a disease that goes after a very specific portion of the population and therefore we could have adopted the science and gone after it in an approach where we protect that portion of the population and make sure that the the young don't carry an unnecessary burden with the new data and the new the new kind of pragmatism that we could have brought to the situation. Yes, I, I agree with you about the, the students, obviously, and we've been talking about it here for a while, just about how we should be back in school, we should be learning in person. Yeah. And I think the Flint example is egregious. I do think that most school systems are not Flint. And so that's where I would take issue with is like, for her, this gets to what I was saying before, is that there, there's, I, I would want a little bit more from her in acknowledging how much we've actually pulled back, but I do think we can go faster. And I do think that people who are pro-restriction need to look at the data, whether it's Sweden or even Florida, which I've been historically critical of some of their decisions. But if you stack Florida, I think it's ranked like 17th, 17th um, yeah. for COVID deaths or something since the beginning or per capita. Uh, so it's obviously not this this uh, this catastrophe that people were warning about. One thing that she does, I feel like this is, this is a common practice is that people go too far with the data. So she says, for example, that vaccine passports uh, do nothing because like essentially like it does nothing to stop the spread. And I, I looked into this this morning and like I pretty much am with her in the sense that like the data right now doesn't say too much about how transmissible COVID is when, for somebody who has the vaccine versus doesn't. It says a whole lot about how 
it impacts whether you are hospitalized or not and whether you die or not, right? But then she goes on to say cloth masks do not do anything. Uh, and that's just simply false. Like, uh, the, Ashley Stachinsky, who's a Stanford epidemiologist, did a meta-study uh, looking at this question and said that cloth masks are 10 to 30% effective. Now, that's not nothing. It's not great, but it's not nothing. And I think like this hyperbole out there that everybody's got to marshal the most extreme version of their positions. She's feeding into the polarization here when she does this. She she seems like she's even-handed. She seems like, oh, hey, like I was the one washing my... my uh, my uh, groceries and, you know, and I know that the data has changed, but then she goes on to be completely uncharitable about it, saying, basically saying like, this is a moral crisis and then overstating her data. And I'm saying like, like you need to be more measured about this stuff if you're going to try to persuade people. And I, and I, once again, I want the people who are anti-mandate and uh, anti-restriction or at least more skeptical of it to uphold their own standard of being precise, charitable, factual uh, with other people because I didn't see it here, you know? Mm. I don't know. I take exception with this this Hirsch Hirsch statement that we all did it, that's just we all did it. I, I'm from, I was living in Alabama during the pandemic. Trust me, most of them weren't doing it. Yeah. They weren't wearing masks. They weren't social distancing. They weren't washing their hands. And, and there's three different stages of this, right? There's 2020 when we didn't know what was going on and we were doing crazy things to try to mitigate it. I totally agree that a lot of that was over the top, didn't work. I totally agree that we should not go back to that. And like Ravi's pointed out, we're not doing those things anymore. Then there's 2021 where people were already over it. And like like she says, people were already there in 2021. And that's why we had more people die from COVID in 2021 than in 2020 because Delta hit and a lot of people weren't getting vaccines. They were definitely not following you know a lot of the restrictions by then. And now we're in this Omicron stage where it's more infectious, but it's less harmful. So now that changes. And you know, her, her statement about vaccine passports, yeah, that makes sense in, the, in light of Omicron. But Omicron literally just hit a month or two ago. So we don't know the full implications. Yeah, that's the thing is you can't study this stuff that fast. Yeah. So you could only go back based on what you know about Omicron and previous uh, studies of COVID, right? And that's science, right? Science is, is something that evolves. It's not a person. It's not an institution. It's not static. It's a process. But in the end, like, I think, Ricky, you and I, there's very little daylight anymore because you persuaded me on a lot of stuff, including on vaccine mandates. Like, I'm kind of with you on the end result. I just think when I look at the the way that she's talking, uh, it it concerns me that the people I know that are the most obstinate on this kind of stuff are going to dig in their heels when they see her talking this way. And that's what concerns me, not the end result, because I think I'm super sympathetic to to your position on this. I just don't see her convincing too many people in the way she's talking about it. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And I think that, you know, I mean, I come down on Team Barry and Team Team Mar on this one, but um, I understand the optics of it. And I think, you know, to go to your point, Um, I think some of the frustration is coming from somebody like her, who's a New York liberal, who's been doing all these things Mm -hmm. and doing everything that she possibly could to protect people up until recently. And there is a different a different tenor in a different part of the uh, different part of the country where, you know, people aren't following the restrictions. People aren't getting vaccinated. And I think that's their choice to make. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's my responsibility to protect them from it. And I think that that might be where part of the anger is coming from, um, because, you know, we've had two completely different reactions in different parts of the country. And now it's all kind of getting lumped together. And I think, you know, we're really fortunate that the vaccine is a self-protective measure because in some in some vaccinations that's not the case and everyone really needs to be on board and i think that it's it's really lucky that we all 
almost every single American adult in this country has had the ability to get that vaccination and to, with a very high level of certainty, protect themselves. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the conversation. I'm team Richie Torres in this particular situation. I like all three of them, which yeah. is unusual. I think it was a great conversation. I think yeah. it was nuanced. And, and this is I why I love was... Mark, because you would not see that on any other television show, on any news show, on any nighttime show, because except there's actual debate, conversations. Obviously. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Well, let's move on to something a little bit lighter. Uh, M&M's, uh, the company that makes M&M's, they're rebranding their iconic chocolate characters to be more modern. Uh, but according to conservative media, they're more super woke. In a press statement, Mars Inc. says they're rebranding to reflect a more dynamic, uh, progressive world. I just I just want to talk a little bit about what they're doing here. So the green M&M, which has always been known for being very feminine, sexy, some would, would say. Uh, <laughs> some, some, some commentators on Fox News thought she was really sexy. Um, <laughs> they're making her more confident and empowered and they're going to be removing a lot of these characteristics from her that were associated with you know being uh too sexy or too feminine and now she's going to be more friendly to the brown m&m because they want to promote you know uh unity among females and then they've got this red m&m who's going to be less of a bully and then the orange m&m is going to represent gen x uh gen z anxious like the being anxious in gen z um did we need any of this? Like, I'm hoping there's a data set in our future because I want to see what this looks like because I think you two have both seen this and I haven't seen it. <laughs> well, the idea, well, Tucker Carlson went on this rant about um, these changes. I think, we, I think we can watch a little bit of this. Yeah, I want to see this in action. I want to see what this looks like. The other big change is that the brown M&M has, quote, transitioned from high stilettos to lower block heels. Also less sexy. That's progress. M&Ms will not be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous. Until the moment you wouldn't want to have a drink with any one of them. That's the goal. When you're totally turned off, we've achieved equity. They've won. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. So I, he's upset that cartoons are getting less sexy. Is that, is that, is that his beef As here? somebody who, you know, my first crush was Jessica Rabbit, so I, I, I'm sympathetic. <laughs> but, but I think like... First of all, I, I don't find high heels super sexy. They're just kind of weird. But the, <laughs> um, and it just looks really uncomfortable. Uh, that's to me. That's just my personal preference. Yeah. Uh, I know we're covering this, so I'm throwing uh, rocks in a very glass house. Uh, but like, what? Like, who cares? Like, what? What is? Why is this worthy of a primetime news segment? I don't know. I mean, I think that also. Why was it worthy of Mars? Like putting all this. Yeah, money I also into the agree advertising. Like the whole yeah. thing is so weird. I mean, there's a tone of sexual frustration in the Tucker clip that I just don't even want to touch. <laughs> but like in general, I, I do agree that this like who is going to feel empowered by the M&Ms being more in touch with their anxiety? Like as a Gen Zer, I'm not into that. I don't want to like identify with the orange M&M. And I also I mean, I kind of resent the fact that like there is an idea that like traditional femininity means that you're disempowered. I don't think yeah. that's. I don't right. think that's true. And I think that that's kind of part of the trope that they talked about, that she's more empowered. One of them's wearing sneakers now instead of heels or her boots. Like the whole thing is so dumb. Influences and like nobody. The yeah, whole, yeah. The, the initial thing was super dumb. Yeah. Anyone who's now feels more empowered and secure in themselves because the M&Ms are more woke needs some help. <laughs> but yeah. then also like freaking out about it and yeah. like the, the Tucker thing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't totally disagree with them, but I don't like the whole like, 
the well, sexy androgynous thing is the end goal. Yeah, no, I don't think, I mean, look, things were very androgynous in the 80s with you know, Prince and, and all those rockers who used to have the long hair. Dude looks like a lady was based off one of the guys in Motley Crue. We didn't all turn androgynous after that time period. And what I really don't understand here is Tucker could have made a really good case against this because they said the red Eminem will be less of a bully. Okay, that could be perceived as them saying that the Republican Party is a bully. They said the orange will be anxious. Orange is associated with Donald Trump for some very obvious reasons. So he could have really turned this into like this liberal thing, but instead he focuses on the sexual nature of the green M&M. But to his credit, this, the green M&M was, was doing some very sexualized things. <laughs> I want to show this commercial. This is from 2008. Maybe Tucker has a point here. Look what the green M&M was doing in 2008. <laughs> mm, mint chocolate M&M's premiums. Premium chocolate infused with the cool intensity of mint. Oh, the chocolate experience you've been waiting for. <laughs> so for our podcast audience, essentially there's this green M&M with, with just these, these heels and stockings and very voluptuous lips and these <laughs> eyelashes and she's blowing kisses and she's tell us more she's, Corey. She's, God. She's, she's got chocolate dripping on her it's it's yeah, give it you to know us. i let me let me calm down for a little bit here yeah. it's, i i get why tucker cross would see this and say wow green m&m it's totally sexy why are you robbing of us of this i don't understand that he is this what he, I don't know. I don't understand why it's such a big deal. I don't know. Deal. I need to take it. I need to get a cigarette or something after that. Ad. <laughs> but the, I actually now see what the marketing campaign was about. It actually makes a little bit of sense because it's kind of funny because what you can't podcast listeners see is that the kind of reveal of this ad is that the rest of the goofy M&Ms are behind the camera and they're just kind of dumbfounded by it. Yeah. That's kind of funny to me. And yeah. this is where I think like people take this stuff too seriously. Of course. It's like, like, it's it's both weird and funny to yeah. me. And, and yeah. in a way, that's good marketing. Yeah, they're playing on this concept that the, like this was based off of the fact that the green M&M was already seen as sexy. So they're playing on that. They're, you know, they're making fun of that. And again, this was a long time ago. So now Tucker Carlson is upset because this is he's not gonna get this anymore. Yeah. This is this is this is old America. This is all gone. This is there's a new, more androgynous version of America that's gonna be out we there. We could pull up this clip late at night when he's at home by yeah. himself. <laughs> I don't understand. It's you just know, like nothing's gonna stop him. It's just like when people say, Oh, I wish things were like the 50s again you can watch i it's love like Lucy. watching like 80s porn or like, something like it, it's still out there somewhere you can find it on that note <laughs> we have one more thing we're going to talk about real quick um we had a comment on uh a segment we did on our last show about uh story robbie we really talked to us about about tish james and the investigation to donald trump uh do you want to address that real quick Great. yes uh, i want to shout out jesus hernandez one of our listeners uh, who sent in the following uh, comment and we could put it on the screen for those watching but i'll read it for our, our podcast listeners um he asked, when you say an AG shouldn't campaign on dealing with crime with a specific person, is that because of who the person is or just because a specific person shouldn't be called out in a campaign run? And this was in reference to me saying that Tish James uh, should recuse herself. Uh, and then he, he gave a hypothetical. He says, you know, a candidate who uh, says, I'll take on all criminals and bring them to justice, or somebody who says, I'll do everything in my power to make sure that X group pays more for their crimes. So this is a really good question. So what I was uh, taking issue with is not saying like, hey, there's this kind of crime that I want to take on. Like there's, you know, like let's say somebody runs against Alvin in a couple of years saying, you know, the streets are chaos and I want to, you know, I want to hold people accountable or even the stuff that we were talking about, like the run on the drug stores mm -hmm. saying like there are these organized groups of people who are preying on small businesses and I want to take them down. 
That's different. That's a specific crime and a specific conspiracy. If Tish James had said, there is this one crime that Donald Trump committed, and I am gonna, and it's dangling in front of us in plain sight, and for some reason, my predecessor isn't going after it, and I will, that would be totally fine. But she went way beyond that and made general statements about how she's going to go after him. She's going to look into his books and you know he's going to have to worry about her and all this kind of stuff. And once you go into the general territory and then you mix in the fact that it's not just any uh, potential criminal, but it's a uh, member of the opposing political party, yeah. that's when it tells me that you need to recuse yourself. You shouldn't have made those statements in the first place. That's the But that was a great explanation, Ravi. And if you ever see anything on our show that sounds a little wonky or you want to know more about, you can always reach out to us on Instagram or comment on YouTube and we will make sure to bring up those comments like we've been doing in the last few episodes and address your claims. Uh, but we want to thank you all for watching. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, listen to our podcast on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you. See you next time.